You're listening to the Inverse Theater Podcast, hosted by playwright Kirkwood Bromley. Hey, so welcome to the Inverse Theater Podcast. Uh, this is actually the very first podcast I recorded. Uh, it's an interview with Howard Thorson. I met Howard in 1996 when he came to see my play, Once Unwished Work, with his friend Al Bendit. Not long thereafter, I ended up working with Howard, uh, and he soon became basically the primary director for Inverse Theater. Howard is an actor, director, uh, yogi, uh, reader, philosopher, athlete. <laughs> um, but really, deep down, he is, uh, he's a person of the theater. Uh, he had a long life in the theater before he met me uh, in Portland uh, and then in New York City. Um, but I would say from about 1999 uh, for like 10 years, he was uh, pretty busy directing a lot of my plays. Um uh, Howard and I have been good friends for a long time, and uh, we have worked closely as a playwright director, and I've also spent a long, lot of time uh, sitting with Howard uh, in his apartment or in Tompkins Square, uh, talking about uh, yoga and theater and freedom and lots of other ideas. Uh, I felt it only appropriate that Howard would be the first person I did on this podcast because he has meant so much to me. And uh, as uh, you're about to hear, he is an incredibly profound, thoughtful, kind person. Everyone who knows him loves him. Uh, and uh, I feel the same way. So here he is, Howard Thorson. Hey Howard, uh, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Kirk? Good, good. So yeah, so I'm sorry I'm a little late. I um, we uh, we um, you know in Arizona, you're in New York. I'm in Arizona, and the uh, half the year we're two hours apart. Half the year we're three hours apart uh, because we don't do daylight savings here. So I'm always a little confused as to whether it's two or three. But it was it's it's three right now, and so I'm sorry I was late. That was the reason. Um, but also, I was on the phone with Leah, who is uh, probably in early labor uh, with our with our kid. So uh, that seems to be happening in the next few days. So that's that's where the baby stands. Ah, okay. okay. For some reason, there's a link between you and my babies. If you'll know, if you if if you remember, you know, you were you were the first one to visit my very first kid, and uh, you're uh, here. I think you might've been the first to visit my second one as well. And now here you are during the beginning of my third. So uh, everybody out there, this is an advertisement. If you're having fertility problems, just uh, zoom with Howard and everything will be better. 
<laughs> you're, you're like one of those lingams in India that people climb mountains to like <laughs> rub and yeah. Uh, but, yeah. but, but everybody knows that. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> when I, when I was in the college, I was at a party and a, a woman was there and, um, when she left, I went out to her car and I kissed her goodbye and she got pregnant. The next day she was pregnant and her <laughs> husband, her husband had a very low sperm count. So she said, it was me. So now 100 years later. <laughs> Look out for Howard. No, no. Look out for Howard. You're like one of those skunks that walks through the village. And everybody gets the smell. That's awesome. Well, I'll remember that if I ever have more problems. So um, great. Uh, wow. So uh, yes, great to see you. Um, so um, yeah, we uh, last time we talked, it was all about remembering. Uh, we went through, I think, your entire kind of career with directing my plays um, and uh, our plays and um so I wanted to kind of today uh, maybe do less heavy on the reminiscence, and uh, but I think there will still be some, obviously. It's hard to avoid remembering. And uh, But I wanted to um, like start by just, um, I guess, uh, just diving a little more deeply into directing and uh, what your, you know, what, what your general approach is and some things you've learned about directing via these plays or what directing is, or just start there and see where things go. Um, um, I guess I, my, my first question is like, I mean, you've been making theater since you were like 14 years old, right? All right. And was that, did you start as an actor and then become a director or did you start as a other way around or did you do, always do a little of both. I mean, like the Portland Shakespeare, was that a situation where you were an actor director? So you were in the play and you were directing or what's, what's the genesis of all that? Yeah. How, how long have you got? <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I started as an actor. I mean, that's, uh, I, I, uh, acted in a local community theater and uh, in high school plays. And I also was in a thing in Seattle, there's a thing called the junior programs. And when I was doing it, uh, these plays, they were children's plays and they were done in these beautiful old Pantages theaters. Pantages theater was, was a chain of, theaters where the Broadway shows would tour in di different cities around the country. And so I got to act in these beautiful old theaters. Uh, and then I, uh, then I went to college and uh, as an actor, I got a acting scholarship and went to college. So I really, my idea was really being an actor. I didn't, I didn't think about directing but um, I directed a couple of little plays in high school. But one day in college, some friends asked me to watch a scene. They were working on a scene. And I watched it and I realized that I knew, 
kind of what questions to ask that I saw it, I could see it in a different way. Uh, what to do next? The question was what to do next. Mm. And, mm. And, um, so I, that gave me a little idea that I could direct. Mm. Howard, Howard, uh, do me a favor. Uh, is your window open? Oh yeah. Can we close that? Thank you so much. Sure. I mean, the, the sounds of New York city are very romantic, but. <laughs> oh, there we go. That's so okay. nice. That's great. Yeah, maybe I won't delete this part. How Howard lives for those who know him on the second floor, third floor, right? Howard, third floor, yeah, uh, third floor front front apartment on Ninth Street and Second Avenue uh, in Manhattan, and it's uh, a jungle out there. Um, <laughs> great, no fans on or anything. No. Super. Okay, good. We're good. Thank you so much. Um, so. Uh, so you knew what questions to ask. So yeah. what, were the, what, what were those questions? Well, I mean, the questions were what, what to do next. I, I could see, um, like, uh, I, I could see what questions to ask the actors or uh, a suggestion that was not, like telling them how to say something or where to move, but that had to do with a question about the character. What was the character doing? So um, what to do next in terms of what the character would do next or what the actor wants to do next to well, get the, get the character to be a little, a little more fleshed out. A little, a little of both. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah I, maybe <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm not prepared yeah. to answer yeah. this question. Um, you know, uh, again, a hundred years later, I, uh, um, I think I heard, I, I heard Mike Nichols interviewed and he said that every scene is either a seduction, an argument or a negotiation. And as a director, you need to know which thing is happening in the scene. If you have an argument and you're directing it as a seduction, you can't get anywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're frustrated, but you don't know why, but it's because you haven't identified. I don't know if I hold with that exactly, but it's, but it's that, that's kind of the idea is you, I, I saw that I could look at somebody doing a scene and ask a question that, like, that had to do with what they were doing or make a suggestion that had to do with what they were doing. And it was mm. a different kind of eye than I had ever had. Uh, mm. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting you bring up the, the argument, uh, seduction, negotiation thing, because I remember you're, you're pretty famous uh, for um, saying something way back when that just blew everybody's mind, which is that I, I, can't, I don't know the particular interrogative that came your way that elicited this statement, but somebody was kind of saying something like, well, I, I, um, you know, am I playing the motive of being angry at this person or am I, or am I playing the motive of, of trying to uh, seduce this person? And you said, I think you can do both. 
Um, uh, and, and I heard you say that quite a few times in the rehearsal room that these either or questions of motive, um, what a person is doing in a scene um, are not always either or questions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. there I am. <laughs> there you are, yeah. 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 And and well, so it almost sounds like you're saying that in this experience with these actors, like this this like other eye emerged in your mind. Like all of a sudden you saw uh that you had an insight or a way of seeing drama or plays um that you hadn't really thought of before. And and so is that is that kind of right? Yeah, I think the the plays that I directed when I was in high school, I I was an actor. I told people how to move. I told them what gestures to make. I told them how to read the lines. Yeah. I mean, I tried to be, you know, I knew you weren't supposed to do that, so I kind of tried to modify it a little, but I that's basically what I did. I basically was moving around little chess pieces on the board. Yeah. And very angry when they couldn't do <laughs> what yeah. I told them to yeah but um what do you think this of, was a different thing what do you what do you think of that that um uh, that kind of dichotomy uh or, or that like uh, almost like uh moral law that that you're not supposed to do that because it, it kind of it kind of strikes me that i would imagine if you were to walk onto any uh, movie set or, or a TV show set, you would uh, see a lot of directors telling people exactly where to move, what to do, how to say things. Uh, but in theater, there is like a real uh, a muharam or forbidden zone there. Um, what, what do you make of that? Is, that? is that just like people in theater being touchy-feely or precious or... Is that like what? What's the deal? <laughs> I think movie directing is a, is highly sophisticated, and uh, you probably would not see very often. You know, the the only rule is there's no rule, and I've given line readings and told somebody something to do, uh, and I and I think I'm sure many many directors have at some point uh, because sometimes you can reveal something to an actor by doing that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, they're right. not getting that idea. And yeah. You say, say, say the line, um, and then do the action, or do the action, and then say the line, and it, and they get an aha moment where it becomes yeah. clear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there, there are certainly a lot of uh, people that direct much more. Uh, you know, much more what they call what we call from the outside. You know, moving people around, telling them what to do. Yeah, uh, there are successful people that direct that way, but most people uh, that work in the theater consider it a collaboration. I would say, and so mm -hmm. your your basic uh, it's not only it's respect for the actor; it's also understanding that the actor brings something to. Uh, something that's uniquely their own and that you're not, it's not your idea. Your role isn't to squash them into a, a vision that you have of a character, yeah. but to uh, help them. And also, I think the, a phrase that I used to use was to say 20 imaginations are better than one. 
Yeah. That, and uh, you have to kind of steer the ship. But um, you really, my idea anyway, uh, and I think I think most directors actually, the idea is that you want you want everybody to bring their own their own artistic sensibility, their own psychology, their own insight uh, into the mix. Yeah, and uh, it's a richer experience. Yeah, yeah, and you you um. I mean, it also sounds like you taught acting quite a bit too, didn't you? Yeah, I started teaching when I was in college. I started taught high school students. And then uh, when I was later after college, I lived in Portland, Oregon, and I taught acting uh, to university students and then to adults. And uh, Yeah, so it seems like, it seems like the, the practice of teaching acting comparing that to the process of actually directing a play that, that is going to go in front of people in a little while. Um, you know, it seems like they would bleed into each other and that, that obviously they're, you know, teaching is like the hermeneutics of it is, is about, you know, yeah, it's like about eliciting people's understandings, not necessarily just stuffing, stuffing information down their throat, but, but getting them to have revelations and um, to learn by doing and, and to suggest and to, to midwife and, 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 um, and it seems like that would make it into the, into directing. Is that, is that sound right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, I, I directed one show when I was in college in a, in a directing class and the instructor said to me, uh, you concentrated on the acting and that's what you should do as a young director. You should concentrate on the acting, but, you also later on you have to also focus on the performing mm, mm. so there's so um that what's the difference very true to me that you what's the you difference Aaron, between acting and the acting and the performing what's the difference yeah i mean in the, in the rehearsal room you're really you're trying to understand the relationships you're trying to understand the text the language uh, what people are accomplishing with each other what's the structure of a scene so that something can happen uh one of the one of the questions people ask is how is the end of the scene different from the beginning you know a a character only comes on stage we would say (laughs) yeah i'm talking to a playwright Uh, we would say a character only comes on stage in order to change if something doesn't change even if they're just bringing in a telegram or uh, if they aren't somehow changed, they don't belong in the scene. Um, so you're figuring all that stuff out and you want the actors to uh, engage with each other in the most truthful, that's that's a word we use, mm-hmm. <laughs> the most truthful, honest, open, uh, relaxed, uh, available, uh, w- intimate way that they can. But then um, when you get onto the actual stage, you have to have the the lights. <laughs> yeah. You have to, you know, when you say in a movie set, you have to stand on a spot. They put a tape on the floor. You have to stand on that spot because that's where the camera is. Yeah. And on stage, it's where the lights are. And yeah. uh, you have to be heard and you have to, 
know that uh, some element of the set or the prop or something has to be yeah. handled in a certain way. Yeah. And and so you want to, at least most people, I think, my, myself, you want to have this strong base of reality, so-called reality, of uh, connection, of storyline, of development, but it has to be seen. Yeah. Uh, the old actors, uh, Olivier and those actors that worked in the old theater before microphones and all of that, before the lighting was very good, they said you you had to perform for the old the deaf old lady in the back row. Right, 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 <laughs> right. Yeah. Is there is there often a um, is there often a gulf or an impediment or a challenge bringing what you call acting to performing? I mean, that sounds like almost like that must be weeks in and of itself. It's almost like you get the actors integrated to the play to the to the to plot to the language to their characters to feeling each other to being present and real and this and then you've got to switch to performance and I'd imagine sometimes it's like throwing a lot of that stuff out and trying to figure out how you're going to play to the the the, the deaf lady in the back row. Yeah, um, I mean, ideally, you have actors who have been trained and yeah. they know all that. They have their own methods. They have they know all that and they know yeah. how to. They know what the adjustment is. Yeah. But uh, sometimes, uh, again, none of us uh, work in ideal conditions, but um, yeah. like Richard Foreman, uh, who had his own money, I guess, and his own theater, yeah. uh, David Warlow told me that he, on the first day of rehearsal, Richard Foreman gave you the props, you were on the set. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you... So so you make you made both things at the same time. You made, yeah. of course, Richard Foreman's plays where it didn't have the same kind of intimacy between characters, right? Maybe, maybe they right. did. Right, 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 right. <laughs> it, it reminds me a little of um, I was talking to uh, uh, Xander Stefano in Los Angeles about he wants to do an audiobook of Once on Wished Work and. Um, we were talking about what the process would be. And I said, you know, from, from what I've seen in terms of audiobooks, um, I think that rehearsing without the microphones is actually detrimental. Uh, we should start rehearsing on the mics immediately, even if the mics aren't on and we could tell the actors they're on, or we can not tell them they're on or something. Uh, because some, something I've seen is like you rehearse for a couple of days and then you stick a mic in front of somebody's mouth and they are banging their hands into the mic and they're all of a sudden really taken aback by how kind of narrow that experience is, you know? Um, so I said to him, I think we have to record in front of the mics. Uh, so in a sense, the acting and the performing need to go together. Yeah, I, absolutely. That sounds, that's a great idea, insight. When we used to do Shakespeare in the Parks in Portland, or we did the American Revolution here in New York, uh, you want to rehearse outdoors as much as you can when you're playing outdoors because the, the uh, sense of sound, of space, is yeah. totally different than in, indoors in a theater. I remember, um, I remember we, had, we had that issue because we would, we would rehearse indoors uh, for American Revolution and then go outside, and we had to spend a lot of effort 
getting people to shout. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. they hadn't actually rehearsed the play for the for the the amphitheater that they were in they'd rehearsed it in a little tiny room with lots of echo and 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 um you remember that oh yeah yeah but i mean again you you want to have actors that are trained that yes that can do that can make those transitions but you don't always have that yeah uh, yeah um i just have memories of you sitting on the floor with the actors um, talking about the play and talking about their parts. And it always, you know, we kind of covered last time about how uh, I had worked with, I mean, I think the only three directors I worked with before you were, uh, well, at only, only three people, Aaron and, and Emma Griffin and, uh, and I guess I didn't actually work with Randy Rand. You guys did Othello with him. But I would say uh, those those directors struck me as a little more uh, outside or whatever that phrase was you used. Uh, they, were, they were a little less, um, they were more about do this, say that in this uh-huh. way. Um, and uh-huh. I, I remember really being taken aback by watching you start to rehearse and being in the rehearsal room with you where you would be sitting on the floor with the actors and, and, and going through things and really like um, trying to elicit what was in them uh, that they might do and being very into their suggestions. And uh, it was a total uh, worldview change in terms of what directing is for me when I saw you do that. Yeah, I think, uh, I think maybe, um, the first play that I did, you were a little unsure that it was going <laughs> to was going to happen because of that uh, that approach. But oh, I, really? I, I don't know. Yeah, I believe yeah. it happened, and I think it uh, again. I like uh, one of the actors, one of yours, uh, came to me at the beginning of the rehearsal period and said, "I have to be." He actually said something like, "I have to be beaten into." The, submission i have to yeah you know and i well i'm gonna love you into this role yeah 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 (laughs) yeah 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 that's great um was uh was is there anything you can think of that like um so let's go back to some of those plays like brainwash and amrev and um You know the, these uh, were what 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 would you say about directing like my plays? <laughs> <laughs> well, I might have said it last time we talked too. That the um, I mean, the first thing is you're, you're given a script which is uh, has it's dense, uh, it's uh, deep. <laughs> It's uh, not always easy to understand. It's it's like so it's it's like doing a Shakespeare play in a way. There's a lot of allusion. There's a lot of uh, unusual words, maybe, and there's the rhythm of the poetry. Uh, so 
first of all, to direct one of your plays, I had to break that open for myself. I had to understand a scene, a line, uh, what was going on uh, well enough that I could, if an actor asked a question, I could answer it, or at least uh, we could answer it together. Um, so that, that was... I think in any verse play by any author, you have to take into account the verse as the given world. In, in the world that these characters inhabit, people speak in verse. And that makes a different kind of person uh, than most of us. In fact, I, I, most of us uh, in, in my world are not very articulate, don't speak in complete sentences, hem and haw, uh, right. repeat cliches. <laughs> and um, so it's a, it's a, that, that adjustment uh, is one thing. And um, with Brainwash, the first show that I did, Midnight Brainwash Revival, we had a, a luxury of two things. One was that while the script was first being written, uh, we didn't have any script, and I, but uh, the actors came and I worked with them improvising. I got, I got them used to my style, my, my approach, uh, without the difficulty of working on a script. I, they, I think they had fun. I think you had fun in those sessions just uh, doing stand mostly standard improvisation. And then um, when we started getting the script, we got the, it in pieces, a, a scene here, a scene there, and got to play with that. So it was a wonderful process where we could absorb those elements of the poetry and you were there to interpret things that we didn't always understand. And um, so, that's a that's a luxury, you know. And I had a few luxuries with you, either with the cast, with uh, Midnight Brainwash, and with uh, Don Fulgrante. We had months of meeting with the cast, and uh, or later with uh, the death of Griffin Hunter. I didn't have the cast involved, but I met with you for several months. Once a week, I'd come out to your apartment with a bottle of wine and we'd talk through a scene or an act. Um, have I lost the point of the question? Yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. Um, a couple of things I was oh, thinking. Boy. Go ahead. Yeah, but I think for, the, for a trained actor, the you know, what they want to know is what does my character want? Where am I going? in this play, what and what are my obstacles? What are, so that's the, the crux of drama is an objective and an obstacle. Mm -hmm. and, and so you have to be able to talk that way to a, an actor, I think, even uh, if the play doesn't always suggest exactly that kind of thing. When you said, <clears throat> Maybe you heard me saying, well, you can do both or you can do 10 things at, at yeah. once. A human, a human being does do 10 things at once. Uh, but, but you want to find a 
a structure both for the actors, uh, for yourself, for the audience, to have a feeling that this is a play, that it's moving in a certain direction, that there is conflict and resolution. Yes. Uh, yes. 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 Um, that's really cool. Uh, a few things I thought uh, while you were talking about that is, uh, you know, I think that another thing that we maybe overtly or subliminally, subliminally we're struggling with, uh, like doing some of those early plays that, that you did, um, was that uh, there was, you know, when, when you do Shakespeare, there's like a huge history of performing those roles. Many people have been in numerous Shakespeare plays. Uh, they've seen Shakespeare plays. Um, and so there's a, there's a performance vocabulary. There's a, a, a vocal style vocabulary. There's a, a lot there. In fact, it seems to me a lot of, a lot of Shakespeare productions now are about saying, okay, there's this massive uh, uh, backlog of ways to do this play. How can we, how can we unbury ourselves and find, uh, you know, uh, some kind of newness uh, to, to yeah. how we're going to interpret this play. But with my plays, they were brand new. Um, they're not thee and thou and my Lord and my lady. So there really was no, uh, in a sense, uh, vocable style analogy between me and Shakespeare. Um that that you know where you could just take it an, an absolute st the way you perform Shakespeare you can just go and perform Bromley that way so we were we were like in a new reality because the question is sort of I think another question that actors often ask is how do I stand how do I hold my hands what's my what's my accent what's the cadence in my voice um, who am I being um, what's the what's the what's the reality that I'm representing? And it's very, I, I guess, well, this is a question. Is, is it very different representing a reality in like one of my verse plays versus a contemporary, say, prose play? I mean, what's the, what's, is there a struggle there in terms of bringing a, one of my verse plays to the stage, given how different they are than your average prose play, which would seem to lend itself to a more realistic approach? Yeah, um, <laughs> in a in a word, I would say no. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> but uh, but it's different. It is different, and I think that um, you mentioned last time um, Marat Saad that play, uh, the persecution and assassination of Jean Paul Marat, as performed by the inmates of the. Institute of Charenton under the direction of Marquet de Sade is the title. Um, <laughs> that the the play, the story of the play within the play, the setting of the play within an insane asylum, the character of the Marat Sade, the political references and everything. I mean, that's a play. It was a hit play. Uh, it was done as a movie. It was a popular movie. Um, and yet it's totally from outer space, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I would, I, again, I think I said a little bit ago that in the world of your plays, people speak in verse. All right. And in the world of your plays, uh, 
strange things can happen, but that's the world in which, at least the way that I looked at it. Um, and I don't know how else to look at it. That That's the world that's yeah. happening on the yeah. stage. One thing you, Shakespeare used the rhythms of ballads, of um, sonnets. The, the, these rhythms appear in his plays. You know, and people speak, son Romeo and Juliet's first meeting is a sonnet. That's, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And, and um, I think the, the rhythms that you, uh, you, you, you used the rhythms of the popular music of the day. And yeah. may, the first time that I remember really being cognizant of that was the, my name is Kid Manana. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, It's a different, it's not, you're not Shakespeare, you're somebody, you're Bromley. Uh, yeah. But the, and and one thing I would say that's a, a little bit of a difficulty for me is that I'm an old man. I was an old man already when I started directing these plays and I don't have the access, the mental access. I don't listen to that. I didn't listen to that music. I had to like do research like in yeah. the Oxford English and listening to punk rock or, you know, yeah. I had to find out what it was because it wasn't my native language as an older person. Right. 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 Yeah. It's, I, I seem to, um, I seem to also remember you, I, I, I think, I think, I think I'm going to credit this to you. It might've been Aaron Bell, but I'm going to credit this to you that, that, that this, this idea in terms of helping the actors get into the groove and the rhythm of the play was that um, uh, every character is, I mean, this is the, this was like the phrase used, every character is as smart as Kirk, meaning like, you know, you've got to uh, get into the playwright's head and be performing and thinking at the level that the playwright is performing and thinking out. Of course, the playwright takes a year of editing and writing and re-editing and rewriting. And this isn't actually how the playwright thinks. I mean, I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to, it's a spoiler alert here, everybody, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't just dictate my plays, although that's a whole other story, but you know, um, but, but, but it, there was a, there was an element of like getting everybody to a, to a, I don't know, like an intellectual pace or an intellectual level of delivery and cognizance. Um, and part of that was saying, you know, we're all in a, a higher kind of dense poetic universe right now. Um, and we have, we've all got to stay there for two and a half, three, four hours, however long the play is. Yeah. I, I, I certainly did say that and maybe Aaron did as well. I don't know, but uh, it's a, it's another, um, it's a director's uh, tool <laughs> to say that y y the character is as smart as you, but in this case, the character is as smart as the playwright. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, my dear friend, uh, Alex Kay, uh, has said to me a few times, when you go to a Bromley play, you realize that you've been walking around asleep 
and that you have to wake up, you have to listen. Yeah. <laughs> you have to, your synapses are firing. Yeah. If you're trying to connect these uh, wide associations, this uh, firecracker language. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's not, you know, television. I, I like television and movies too, but yeah. it's, kind of fed to you, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's the music in the background that tells you how to feel. There's the, <laughs> every, everything yes. is given to you and you just have to kind of go along. Yes, yes. It. But in a in a play, and particularly in a Bromley play, you have to wake up, you have to sit up and listen and look. And, yeah, yeah. That's, and that's... You, you, you're not getting it all. And that's one of the delights of art, I think, is when you, of any great art when you look at and you know that you're not getting it all that you're just trying to get as much as you can to yes have a relationship with this production yeah 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 that's that's really cool um i i i I, of course i have you know a long history of kind of uh either sitting in the seats and and kind of uh getting a sense that people were maybe plugged in about 20 30 percent of the time to what was being said and and being kind of fretful about that and then of course i'd also have a lot of conversations out in front of the theater after the play about like well i don't get i didn't get much of it um (laughs) and you know my, my my experience with all that was a little uh well you know, I used to say, you know, when I go to a Shakespeare play, I get 20% of it. Um, and, uh, but what I like is the way the play grabs me by the throat and pulls me forward. And sometimes it also throws a bag over my head. <laughs> and, <laughs> I, you know, I don't quite know where it's taking me, but I know it's still got me by the throat. And my goal is to either get the bag off or try to see through the bag or hear through the bag or, or comprehend those muffled, dark shapes and sounds that I'm getting. And I know that I'm going to be able to get my bag off and, and, and at some point, and I always do, uh, but it's, it's the kind of thrill of um, maybe it's like, you know, getting, having, having, having your friends throw, you know, throw ropes around you and put you in the trunk for your bachelor party and drag, <laughs> drag you to a bridge and throw you off. You know, you, you don't know what's going on, but it's, it can be exciting and, and it can be hard. And, you know, I used to, I used to say that my goal was to get people involved in a very real guttural, almost indescribable dramatic action and if i can get that if i if that can be clear that 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 that's there then i can almost say anything um because that is still there and they can hook into that and you know i i I, i'm not sure i always achieved that but but you know when when you even when you watch I, i mean i've just i've i've seen shakespeare scenes uh you know where I don't have a clue what anybody is saying, but I know that someone is contemplating like stabbing or kissing someone else. And, you know, I don't know which is, which is going to happen. Um, and I love, I love that sense of somehow I'm plugged in and somehow I'm not plugged in and I've got to get plugged in through some other plugs and running those circuits and, and being really, like you say, actively engaged in, experiencing the play 
uh, is to me, that's like a great experience. Uh, that's a great theater experience where you're having that. I, I also want to say, I remember um, I was around when Branagh came out with his Hamlet and um, it, it opened at the, I think it's the Zigfield Theater. And what is that? Is that the Zigfield in, 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 in yeah, yeah. right by the plaza? Right. I, I, I think it only ran there, but but I, I got a seat and I went and I was I was in the second to last row. Um, you know, this was a movie, but everybody was fighting and paying top dollar for for to be down in the orchestra and in the front row seats. Um, but I was <laughs> I was up in the nosebleed section, um, but I, I was in the second to last row. But the last row was filled with people with their folios open. <laughs> yeah. Because Branna did, I don't know what, what he did the whole play, the first folio, the second folio. What did did, he do? It was uncut. Yeah, I think so. He did. What did he do? <laughs> I think he did it. He didn't cut it. And yeah, he didn't cut it. So he did the whole play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and people were sitting in the back with their folio open, following the play word for word. Um, and I don't think they were auditing it to make sure, you know, that he was keeping his word not to cut anything. I think they were, you know, they were having an experience of reading the play while listening to the play and seeing the play. So it was like three different things going on. It was like having subtitles and, um, you know, like when Leah, my partner, my wife, my, my roommate, when she, she always says, she always wants to sit and read the play when she listens to it or sees it. Um, so she reads yeah. it along with it, um, which, you know, is, is a cool experience. But I, I just remember seeing that happen in that Shakespeare movie, uh, in the audience of that Shakespeare movie and thinking, you know, yeah, I guess, you know, I guess my experience of watching a Hamlet, for instance, and really feeling like I, I'm drifting off and not quite understanding things for a while is, is normal because here these people are who are probably Shakespeare experts needing to read along with the play to get the full experience. You know, when I did a lot of Shakespeare outdoors and you, so you could see as an actor, you could see the audience and quite a few people would bring this, the play along. Oh really? <laughs> and, and they would sit and read it? Yeah. They, they will fold your library and they would, Oh, wow. I've never seen that anywhere. I've never seen that in a live play. Yeah. Huh. It's probably because I was always looking at my navel. <laughs> Another thing I thought I was, was, about this uh, is the truth is that uh, you don't get anything, everything when you see Death of a Salesman or when you see... Uh, Our Town. And yeah. any... any play or, yeah. or any uh, concert or any you know you, you don't get it all yeah and you never you know, you'll never get it all uh, so yeah. i last week i went out to brooklyn and saw david greenspan uh speak oh, yeah. the text of gertrude stein's opera four saints in three acts and um you know he spoke it he didn't sing it uh and gertrude stein about 90% of that, you don't know what she's up to. But once in a while, she'll say something like, pigeons on the grass, alas, and everybody laughs and applauds. And <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> and right. Um, on the uh, program, they had prominently displayed uh, her, what she said about her writing was, 
if you have enjoyed it, you have understood it. <laughs> I think there's something to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She's okay. So she's a really interesting example, obviously. And you mentioned Foreman too. I mean, um, and I mentioned Wellman last time. I want to ask you this question. I, I always felt, let's say, proud. I'm not sure I feel proud anymore, but I think at the time I was, I had a pride um, in this idea that I was different than Wellman, Foreman, and Stein. Um, in that I was creating plays that, that had that kind of more elaborate language, but that I was doing plots and I was doing really yeah. a, a little more, uh, I don't know what the phrase is. I want you to tell me what the phrase is. Was, was my pride baseless or is there a distinction between those plays you directed and say those three writers that you could notice? No, I, I think it, you're, you're absolutely right. And that, that was, um, I mean, I, I would, I might've enjoyed your plays if you had been more in that other mode, but I, I wouldn't have been so interested in working with you. I wouldn't have been so taken. It's, uh, I, I don't, I don't know what, if there's a, we, we should try to coin a phrase or something. Yeah. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Um, when I, I think like many people, when I came to New York, I had a, an idea of the avant-garde theater mm. uh, as not making much much sense, and mm. <laughs> you know, was, and um, one of the first uh, plays I saw was by Charles Ludlam, the Ridiculous Theater Company. Mm. I don't know if you ever saw those plays, but he, um, I didn't, but I, I know of him, and, and yeah, go on. Yeah, he played Candide, the famous uh, was Greta Garbo, and then before her, uh, Dusa and all, Sarah Bernhardt, all the great actresses played Candide, and he played it in a low-cut dress with his hairy chest and a bad wig and uh, some wooden clogs for his shoes. And, um this was this was a classical theater <laughs> in a sense right but it, right. Was, it was totally ridiculous it was a gay sensibility it was uh he was kind of homely and yet he could he could turn you on to um emotion like a like a regular classical actor uh, or it could be just this ridiculous hammy overacting mm. and what that's that said to me you know, I loved all those other people. I loved Richard Foreman's work, uh, but, but this was like there was a continuity of um, the theater. <laughs> and you, you, in your different, in your very, very different way, very, <laughs> I would say, you, you, there was a continuity with the theater there. That was the, the that. Um, Maybe was maybe with some other avant-garde theater, it was more like dance, more like music, uh, more like uh, poetry reading, mm. more like uh, mm. more like improvisation, different things. Uh, but you're you're you have a kind of a classical feel about you, or you did have mm. when I met. You. 
Um, a continuity with the theater. Yeah. Yeah. So that I could trace a Bromley play back to Aeschylus. <laughs> yes. I, I don't know if I could trace. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Can you trace Foreman to Aeschylus? I mean, you certainly can, right? Yeah. So, so yeah. what was your but... t- clarify <laughs> clarify for me what 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 bringing up Ludlum what, where that falls like what 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 was your point there? My point was that I saw a, a, a clearly avant garde theater. Yes. Embedded itself in the classical theater. I mean, he did. Yeah. His plays were all renditions of either you know, famous classical plays or famous classical movies. Uh, yes. So, so he started with that base. He didn't try to invent something new and people weren't all wearing black and right. walking along the stage attitudes. Right, right, uh, right. Yeah, that, that's, I think that's, I mean, I, I liked how you said continuity with the theater and then brought up these other things like, you know, dancing, poetry, readings, music, uh, performance art. Um, in a sense, the avant-garde uh, has been in the last hundred and hundred years or so, you know, it has been uh, maybe, I mean, it's obviously been uh, an attempt to veer away from classical theater or, or the theater uh, and bring in these other elements and give off a different uh, vibe, a different genre, um, really bring bring the bring the dynamics and and rules and and epiphanies uh, of these other forms like dance and music and poetry in into a theater and say look here's theater we have actors we're memorizing lines we're doing things but uh you know it's obviously maybe there's not a continuity with the theater there's a discontinuity with the theater um and you know it's probably really hard to say something maybe new or profound about this but like I'm I'm fascinated by the question of what that, when you're being continuous with the theater, what you're being continuous with. Um, and I mean, obviously there's like, it can, remi- like you say, it can remind you of an Aeschylus or a, or, or a Marlowe or even an Ibsen or something. Um, it can, it can have indiscernible echoes of that, but I, I wonder what, what that continuity, like what, What's that? What? The, how? How one spots that continuity? What are the things that 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 indicate that continuity is there? Yeah, that's. Um, I mean, I know that, that you you went through a period not not so much when I was working with you, but after uh, of questioning narrative and trying to look at narrative in a different way or dissolve narrative. But I I think that narrative is probably yeah the uh, the thing that I'm talking about. Yeah. I don't, it occurred to me uh, that I don't, whatever anybody thought of your plays or didn't understand or liked or disliked, I, I think everybody left the theater thinking they had seen a play. Right. Right. I don't think they left the theater seeing, uh, well, they saying, what was that? Right. What it was. What it was was a play that they either liked or didn't like or yeah. engaged in in many different ways, and and what the essence of a play is, I think, is a story. Right. <laughs> it's a it's it, it's about 
human psychology. Right. Uh, in its essence, it's about relations, family relations, uh, love relations, um, artistic relations. But it's so at, at least for myself, directing your plays, that the question I, I mentioned earlier, a character comes to into a scene in order to change uh, the world at the end of the play needs to be different from the world at the beginning of the play. Something has happened. And right. I think that that was definitely the case in every play that I worked on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you're, you're totally right that I would, I would say that I, I probably wrote, I probably wrote um, 10 plays that, that were, were continuous with the theater and then, frustrated with where that was getting me, I decided to write 10 plays that were discontinuous with the theater. And, uh, and that didn't really get me any, anywhere, anywhere either. And then, and then I decided maybe I shouldn't be trying to get, get anywhere, but yeah, there was a, (laughs) there was a rupture there. Um, and, um, I remember I, I really got into performance art and I was looking, I was watching the Vienna actionists you might remember that was, uh, yeah. Uh, in a way, a part of the influence of No More Pretending, where the the actress comes in two thirds of the way through the play, covered in covered in her own feces, and and um, you know, very Vienna actionist, and uh, and then I obviously started veering into uh, play like uh, you know, the Kill the Fish in in me, um, and. Um, performance art and dance and music and poetry. And uh, I think, I think that the, 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 what's that? Stand up. (laughs) Yeah. Stand up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But I'm, I'm back in love with narrative now. So that's, it's uh, refreshing to come home. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. Hmm. So I feel like it's kind of time to ask, um, I I guess, well, I'm a little, I'm a little trepidatious about bringing this up now, but I guess I, I will. I mean, the thing that, you know, I was thinking to talk about in another session, but maybe it's a good time to kind of start bringing it up now. Um, you know, uh, what, what hasn't, what we haven't talked about with you yet is, is like your history with, uh, yoga. Um, you've been, a yoga yogi uh, for as long as you've been in the theater uh maybe longer so which 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 would you say came first howard they came around the same time yeah Yeah, same time um i i I, you've told me basically that i think it was you know when you were 13 14 or something you kind of started getting into yoga and you started getting into theater and um uh and you and I have obviously had a, a million talks uh, about uh, 
yoga and theater. Uh, and I'm looking forward to having more and, and hearing, you know, share, sharing those with people. Um, tell me, uh, uh, you know, talk about, talk about, we talked about a little about your beginning with directing and theater. Talk about your beginning with yoga, because I think ideally I want these two roads to kind of start coming together. So tell us <laughs> about your beginning with yoga. Yeah. Um, First of all, I, I, when I was 12 years old, I was I was in the hospital. I, I had an accident. Uh, you dropped a boat. You it, dropped a boat on yourself or something. My brother dropped a wheelbarrow full of cement on me. From we were building a dock uh, yeah. on the beach where I grew up, and the wheelbarrow flipped out of his hands and fell on me. A wheelbarrow full of cement and my leg was crushed and broken and I was hospitalized and I had a kind of out-of-body experience um, and I was in the hospital for a month and then I was on crutches for a few months and limped. And, hold on, you, hold uh, on, you said you had an out-of-body experience, what do you mean, what happened? Um, I was... I was able to see myself. Uh, I was like in the sky. I was able to see the beach. I, I, I could see neighbors come running out of their houses, and I could hear screaming. <laughs> this was right. I, at, this was right after the wheelbarrow fell on your leg. Yeah, yeah. And then I. You kind of black out. No, then I was back in my body, and I was doing yeah. the screaming. Okay. But I should have said before that. <laughs> that at this very time I was in my first play. I was done mm. in a play called Life with Father. Mm. It was a it was an old crusty play. It had been the, the most popular play on Broadway, I think up until like 1960 or something. It probably had done the most performances of any play. It had been a TV series and a movie. It was originally a book. Anyway, I was playing a boy in this family and um, I started rehearsals and then this happened and I was out of the play and I was in the hospital and I was in this other world. So mm. those things, that's when I say the things happened simultaneously. Uh, I didn't realize until I'd been doing yoga and other things for quite a while that that, that probably I was trying to figure out what had happened when I had this out-of-body experience. Mm. Uh, but anyway, I didn't actually know that. Yeah, I was always a reader, and I I was uh, I liked to uh, wander in bookstores all around Seattle and just look at the covers of books. And uh, so I came across this little pamphlet called "How You Can Talk with God." <laughs> By Paramahansa Yogananda, who was a famous uh, yogi, came from India, taught in the United States for thirty years. Right, and, and wrote uh, and wrote autobiography of a yogi, right? Yeah, which is a very famous book, very yeah. influential. Yeah, uh, and um, so you came across a pamphlet that said how you can talk to God, how you can talk with God, and yeah. it, it uh, his. Uh, his presentation was that if you sincerely uh, talk to God, 
that God would talk with you. And there's a phrase in the Bible that says that the Lord spoke with Moses uh, face to face like a man speaks with his friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I was yeah, I was 12 years old or 13 years old, I guess 13. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This uh, appealed to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then because I was such a reader, I, I uh, found the autobiography of a yogi. And uh, I was like my friend Johnny Stallings uh, also had this kind of experience of coming upon the autobiography of a yogi. And he said it, it was like there was a door in your house that nobody ever said anything about. And then one day you opened this door and there was an entirely different <laughs> <Yep>. world. <laughs> right, right, right. Nar- Nar- Narnia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So... Um, what what uh, appealed what, a, what appealed to you about the book? Like what what did the book what what what? Well, it was it was you know I had I had a religious bent. I I read the Bible. I believed in Jesus. I uh, you know I my family had a my my family had a little bit of a Christian Science history in my mother's family. It was kind of. Mm-hmm. I, my father didn't like it. It was kind of a secret mm-hmm. uh, religion that uh, if that had to do with uh, healing, spiritual healing, mm-hmm. uh, uh, philosophy of mind, God is infinite mind. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that you could know things, that you could experience these things was mm-hmm. uh, intriguing to me or exciting to me. And then when I read Autobiography of a Yogi, uh, Yogananda's, it's, it's full of magic, uh, but his st- stated principle is that yoga is a science, that you can learn this uh, just like you can learn mathematics or something mm-hmm. by, by, by practicing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I became a disciple. Yogananda was no longer alive, but he had recently been alive and uh oh, so he was so he was he was dead when you actually saw this pamphlet yeah okay yeah. okay but his his uh his like ministry lived on yeah yeah okay and you started i think ordering mail order pamphlets <laughs> is that yeah, right you're going to introduce the idea of a weekly correspondence course it was like four years long mm-hmm <laughs> You get a little, every Thursday, I get a little uh, thing in the mail. Mm-hmm. And um, so I started practicing meditation and uh, studying these teachings. And again, because I was a reader, I didn't confine myself to the Yogananda teachings. I read all the, the popular Hindu uh, teachers and some things that bled over into Buddhism as well. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Would, would you say, I mean, I know that like, for instance, Bikram invented his, his whole series after um, a big knee injury. W- were you, were you consciously using yoga to like heal from this, this injury? No, I was totally unconscious that it had anything to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I just, uh, but it really, it really took off after this injury though. Yeah, it. Uh, well, as I said, I it was it was probably a year later. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. My leg was 
broken in uh, October. I think it was probably this the following summer that I came across this yeah. business. Okay, so, uh, so go I, ahead. I will go ahead. No, no, say what you're going to say. Yogananda was kind of a beautiful Indian guy with long wavy hair and um, he appears on the uh, cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band mm. in, that, in that crowd, he and his guru, Sri Yukteswar. And um, a, a lot of people were discovering this stuff at the time. Yes. And uh, over in the there, – there were a lot of people that were discovering Zen Buddhism also. There's a theory about it actually that um, – you know, a lot of the uh, soldiers that were stationed in Japan after the war, uh, kind of with nothing to do, became interested in Zen and uh, and uh, hung out in the Zen temples or actually took up the practice of Zen. And um, the beatniks were very interested in Buddhism. Yeah. And uh, so there was so a lot of this was going on. Uh, with many people, but in my little world of West Seattle, there was nobody <laughs> but me that was doing this. <laughs> right, right, right. Wow, you were living but, that, living uh, this little this little secret in your room with the little mail orders and. Yeah, yeah, but it wasn't too secret. Uh, and as I when I psychologically discovered discovered when I psychologically recovered, which took me about a year and a half, I would say, then I wanted to go be in a play. Right. And I got to play at the local uh, community theater. Right. So that's why I said they, they they were they came together. Yes. And I think if you know any actors. <laughs> yeah. That, this is not so odd. You know, there's something about this theater that has a religious aura about it. Mm. Uh, people's feelings about the theater and about acting. Mm. Uh, the, there's maybe a, maybe a public idea that, the, that actors are egotists and narcissists and people who have never grown up and they live for applause. Uh, Maybe true, but the actor's experience. <laughs> Sounds himself. like everybody I know, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, right. The actor's experience of himself is that he's, he's searching for understanding of mm. expansion, a kind of a, an ability to become another person. Mm. And there's also a kind of a, there, there's a tradition of literature mm. uh, connected to the theater, mm. uh, of philosophy, of uh, history. Yeah. So, so actors that are not yogis or that are not particularly religious in any way have a kind of a spiritual sense of the theater. Yes. Yes. Wow. This is okay. This is awesome. This is really uh, there's a lot there. So I, I have a lot of questions. The first one I want to ask is, what is the narrative of yoga? <laughs> The narrative of yoga. You said the theater is uh, is, is objectives and obstacles, um, and that there's a narrative to the theater. That if you're continuous with the theater, you're engaging in in a narrative. Is there a narrative in yoga? Does yoga have a th a narrative? I think yoga presents the. Uh, I mean, of course, 
the Indian tradition is different from the the modern Western tradition because it never had a personality like Jesus. Buddha may have been that personality, but he was kind of forgotten in India for a long time. But mm-hmm. so we never had this kind of uh, central church uh, in Indian religion. Every little village has its own god. Uh, every every uh, guru, every yoga teacher develops their own teaching. Kind of, there's nobody that there's no pope that tells you what yoga is. Their own, uh, as as one of the gurus that I knew, uh, Swami Nitya, said, um, "Yoga is what a yogi does." <laughs> yeah. So this, so it's, but however, there are classics of Indian literature. There's the Yoga Sutras and there are the Upanishads, which are the stories of the forest uh, meditators, the elders. And uh, and yoga appears in some forms in the Indian epics, the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. Uh, so there is a, there is a, you can put together a kind of story or at least the British <laughs> oppressors did <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is i guess you would say that a person can through these special practices um which vary from teacher to teacher in school to school a person can understand life and become uh, aware of a higher consciousness or a wider consciousness uh or in some um, schools of yoga, attain magical powers and vanquish death. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. uh, we don't hear that very much anymore. I don't. Think. Right. <laughs> but but, right, but, uh, you, that's... but your point is, is there's a lot of that over the last two thousand years, or uh, in in yes. the yoga literature, is that uh, this kind of magical conquering death and stuff. Yeah. 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 Um, and yeah, go ahead. Well, so in the, in, we, we talk about traditional yoga. I don't think anybody knows what that is really, that in the history of yoga, it, it was originally kind of a, the people that did yoga left society. Indian society is very regimented very family oriented people did what their parents did they were told what to do they were told who to marry when they married when a woman married she moved into her husband's family home and became part of his family yeah everything was was highly regimented including the indian religions uh, and the yogis uh, were basically uh, dropouts they they uh left all that yeah went out and lived in the woods sometimes naked yeah and uh, so it has a lot in common with shamanism uh, the in some of the uh, early yoga texts it lists the things that you have to give up and you have to give up rituals you have to give up studying the scriptures you have to give up uh, sleeping in beds yeah <laughs> uh, uh, eating meat, um, 
Yeah. All kinds, all kinds of things, which later yoga became more incorporated into Indian society. And then it started being uh, a little more, I would say, tamed. Right. And maybe through Buddhism also, it became a little more tamed. And uh, Right. You've spoken before of um, like sort of the homeowner versus the versus the uh the man of the forest kind of yeah 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 that it became something that somebody who had a job and had a home and didn't want to necessarily not sleep on a bed could 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 do as well (laughs) right 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 Yeah. yeah yeah um yeah, so so you you talked about uh, the the narrative of yoga being that you can uh, talk with God maybe a little bit and there's something right? yeah you, you well actually you can become one with God yes at least that's the presentation that Yogananda gave and that a certain kind of yoga gives uh, right right the the uh, Phrase they, they they use the phrase uh, cosmic consciousness. Mm-hmm. You can attain cosmic consciousness, mm-hmm. and um, different people again have different ideas about this. Uh, but Yogananda pretty much said you could know everything and anything and everything. You know, yeah, uh, infinite <laughs> that, power, uh, infinite power, infinite yeah. knowledge, infinite yeah. bliss. Important part of that is bliss. Mm. Mm. Great. Well, let's let's keep jumping back and forth because let's talk about theater now. Um, I mean, there's it, infinite knowledge, infinite power, infinite bliss. Um, and you and you talked about you said if you really talked about talk to actors or, or, or delved into what they view themselves as being and doing, there's a religious element there. Talk to me. What 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 is the religious element that actors feel? What, what are they? What are they doing? I, I love that. I'm going to hear about it. Yeah, I I think that um, I mean maybe it has to do with you when you're young, uh, you're looking for something to. You have this incredible energy, right? The energy of, of burgeoning human. You know, your yeah, your sexual maturity, your. Uh, introduced to all kinds of ideas and you're looking uh, maybe at least many people are looking for a vocation. They're looking uh, what used to be called vocation was being called to the priesthood. You're looking to be called right to something, to give yourself to something. Yes. Yes. And you, uh, and the theater, I think, first of all, I think it, it, it has, some things that religion has, which is that history. And when I was young, it still had those old buildings. <laughs> right, the right. Incredible carvings. And the you went to the theater and there was a red curtain and it, you sat there and then you waited and then that red curtain rose up and there the mystery was. Right. The theater comes out of, in the Western world, uh, the theater comes out of the church what's called the, the first plays are little recitations of the angel appearing to Mary and telling her that she's going to give birth uh, in this uh, immaculate way. Right. And, you know, there is a 
three or four lines long, and um, that was considered that's a, a play. Right, right. And it was, it was a play because it wasn't the actual Mary and the actual angel. Yes, yes. And, and then people um, expanded on that. They said, you know, well, maybe Mary could say a little more, or maybe Joseph could come in. And she would have to tell him she was with child and he would, you know, they, they wrote these wonderful plays in the 14th century, I think 15th mm -hmm. century mm -hmm. uh, that were full of humor that really looked on these biblical characters as uh, characters. Mm. And um, some of them were serious and some were humorous, uh, but they, they expanded uh, the repertoire of characters and uh, eventually moved out of the church and then it became competitive with the church. The church didn't like it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it said actors are evil sinners, the actresses are prostitutes and uh, <laughs> so, 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 the, so there's a common history between the church and the theater mm -hmm. that actors feel. But more than that, I think is maybe maybe more I haven't thought this through, Kirk, at all, but maybe <laughs> more is the element of literature. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, like in in Abraham Lincoln's uh, hagiography, in his log cabin that he grew up in, they had a Bible and they had a Shakespeare, the King James Bible and the Shakespeare, and people saw this as this is the roots of the English language. Yes, this is the best that the English language had, and yes, actors that toured the Wild West, yeah, uh, with Shakespeare plays were astonished to find these cowboys and uh, settlers out in the middle of nowhere that knew Shakespeare's plays by heart and could right mouth along. You know, talk about reading; they could mouth along. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because that was that was the extent of the education anyway it was the King James Bible and Shakespeare yes. and uh, and Lincoln's writing has that rhythm to it so I think that there's that quality and there's the quality of that it's what I would call the religion of the human yeah you go to the theater to laugh to cry to observe human behavior, to oogle beautiful bodies, to uh, yeah, to listen, to feel moved by sound, to be delighted by action. This is a, this is um, uh, to, from to my mind. It's like it says life is worth looking at. It's it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Mm. Tragedy, comedy, <laughs> love, uh, pastoral, historical, yeah, <laughs> historical yeah. comedy. Yeah. It's 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 a, let let's pause and admire this and applaud it and observe it and feel it and. Um, there's a there's a book that I've, I I'm right now I'm forgetting the the author uh, a book about the theater the 
that in which he says that the theater at Epidaurus in Greece, he said he he realized that it was right next to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And he thought, well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's a it's a healing. Yeah. Uh, Aristotle talks about catharsis and nobody kind of knows what that means, but it has something to do with emotion, with the, the freeing of emotion. Yeah. And you can go to the theater and you can see human life, horrible and beautiful, and cry and laugh and feel it. And that that is what draws people in, I think. Yeah. The theater. <laughs> yeah. And so you can, as an actor, you can be called to participate in that in that liturgy liturgy and that in that in that healing and that in that like life circle that song circle and you can be called to uh be someone who's gonna you're a conduit for the literature aren't you like you are interpreting yeah. the literature for people you're reminding people of that the literature exists you're engaging them emotionally intellectually and in the in the challenges and the opportunities of the literature uh, you're you're a vessel. Uh, you're a messenger of the literature, aren't you? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, when I was a kid, I remember when I was I was in grade school. A friend of mine, uh, he was a Catholic. He told me he had seen a miracle. I said, "What? What miracle had you seen?" He said, "He saw the the wine turned into blood, into the blood of Christ." Um. I thought. Even even as a little kid, I thought, hmm, you know. <laughs> but that's the ritual in the Catholic Church. That's the ritual. They raise the chalice up. Uh, God enters it. And yeah. the people receive the, the actual blood of Christ. Yeah. Well, I can go out on the stage and I can say... Um, to be or not to be? That is the question. Yeah. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing end them. And I'm Hamlet. Mm. And I can say, uh, you know, where the bee sucks, there suck I. <laughs> and I'm Ariel, you know, I'm a fairy, I'm a yeah. king. I'm, uh, it's um, only the priest in the church can turn water into wine, but every actor, <laughs> mm. I'm sorry, turn, turn uh, wine into blood, <laughs> but every actor yeah. uh, is, a, is a member of a priesthood. People talk about it this way. They say, You're, you have... You know, you've joined the priesthood. You're a member, mm. and, um, and it takes you. This is the way that religion does. And it takes mm. you away from your wife, <laughs> your children, <laughs> your, you know, your job. If you have another job, whatever it is, mm -hmm. it. it uh, so, but I, I and so that that's one thing I would say. I guess I'm talking, talking, talking. Another thing is, there is a special consciousness to being an act, to being on stage, which is that you, 
you have lines, you have things to do that you rehearse. Sometimes they are difficult. There might be a magic trick or something that you, something with a prop, something you are, you can see in a theater, you can see backstage, you see the stage manager saying, pick it up or something, something you can, you hear the audience respond. You have to adjust your rhythm. If there's laughter, you have to wait. Uh, there's uh, all kinds of things that you're doing and you're, you're, you feel very expansive. You feel magic. You feel your magic and you are magic. Mm-hmm. People are looking at you in a special way. <laughs> they're right. seeing what they're seeing, what they would like to be in a way they're seeing. I'd, oh, if I could be that free, if I could be that, uh, intelligent, <laughs> if I could be that fast if I, and uh, so I think that's uh, – and then there's the community. Mm. Uh, Tell me about that. What about the community? Yeah, you you get cast in a play, and you you generally have like four to six weeks or something, and you – you have to hug people, kiss them, uh, hit them, scream at them. Uh, you have to, in, in other words, I would say you have to establish immediate intimacy with them. Yeah. You, you, you can't work it out, work it out <laughs> over time, like in a regular relationship. And so you have to believe this person, uh, you know, I can yell at them. I can, I, you have to believe you can do whatever the play demands and that everybody is, is there to do that. And sometimes somebody doesn't know their lines or sometimes the director is a prick or sometimes something else, but you, you, the play has to happen. You only have so much time. You only have so much. And, and so you, uh, you become a family, you become a little family and in the beginning of doing plays, I've seen this so many times, people that do their first play or when you get a high school group together to do a play or whenever, when the play ends, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> yep. There were, the world has come to an end, you know, because this, it yeah. is your world for uh, four to six weeks or however long the play runs. I don't know what it would be like. I haven't done it. Right. Where these plays run for a few years. Yep. Um, so then you do another play and there's not everybody is in the cast, but some people are, and you, you have the camaraderie of having worked before. And yeah. then you just have the camaraderie of, uh, that people are actors, that they have taken this journey themselves. And so, um, so they know. Mm. And mm. actors love to get drunk and talk about all the stories, you know, the things that happened on stage, the things that happened in rehearsal that this actor did, that that director did, that this audience member did. Right. Uh, it, so you band together. You feel that you have a, a community. Other people have their church <laughs> or yep. their bar, their their golf club or whatever it is that, but you have this uh, community that that is not only 
uh, does things together, but they have this literature, they have this uh, tradition. Uh, it's art. <laughs> it's yeah. play. Wow, that was that was so nicely said. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I guess I feel like that's a really good way to end. <laughs> um, I think that was really beautiful. Um, I really like the connections you made with, you know, getting into yoga, uh, talking with God, uh, having a calling, being a voice of literature, being in a community, living and dying on stage and off stage. Um, and um, I think, uh, you know, your, your stories of working with actors and trying to elicit uh, their, their better selves or their, their own internal, their own internal awareness and instincts and, and, and try helping them uh, bring those onto the stage uh, those stories are, are beautiful and I've seen it in action. And, uh, you know, I think if, if, if theater is a calling and at being actor, you know, actors go to the theater, uh, the thing that they often, uh, run into is they're called to the theater and then they meet the director <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> right. And, and sometimes that can be a huge letdown. Um, uh, sometimes that can be a huge, uh, get up, um, but the director has always, from what I've seen, stood as a, uh, you know, I think actors are called to the theater, directors are called to the theater, uh, but they are different roles there. They play different roles in the theater and, uh, they're both probably necessary, but they are the two central roles of the theater and they have, I would imagine, you know, as storied and as complex a relationship as, as those who are called to a, say a religion or a, a spirituality or an order or a refuge, um, as those people have with the person that runs the refuge and the sanctuary. Um, um, and, you know, I think it's a good time to say that, you know, I think, um, I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I think that my plays have been over time somewhat, I wouldn't say intimidating for directors, but my plays are a big thing. And I've, I've, I've sensed from some other directors that have done my plays or directors that have chosen not to do my plays, uh, that one of the things that, that they encounter with my plays is that um, they don't always get to do their tricks and their tumbles and their bells and their whistles. Uh, they don't always get to have the play be all about dance or, or poetry or a style of movement uh, because the play is already so laden and challenging and big that uh, they're not sure how to, you know, directors these days a lot of them have a shtick, <laughs> you know, and I don't, I don't use that term pejoratively. They, 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 the directors have a style or a brand or a, or a, a method. 
And uh, their productions are all about instituting that method onto scripts or through scripts, or sometimes they don't even have scripts. And um, I think something I've seen with trying to persuade some directors to do my work is that because my plays are already so demanding up front and seem to have so much um, already going on in them, uh, they're not these bare bones, denuded uh, texts that you can kind of go anywhere with, um, that, uh, it's been, it's been a little limiting with what I would say maybe in the last X, X number of years has become kind of a director's theater, um, that that's, it's very hip and very producible and very, a very, uh, marketable to have a, a director's theater. Um, and you, were always such a revelation to me because you didn't have a shtick. You didn't have a method. Uh, you didn't have a choreography that you were already bringing. And I've worked with some directors like that. Um, you, you were there to, to open up the script, open up the potentials in the script and hand the script to the audience. Um, and that was why it worked so well with you and me. Um, what, 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 I know you always have something to say, and that's why we're here because I'd love to hear what you say. What, what do you do? You have anything to say to that? What do you think of what I just said? Well, my, my old master in Shakespeare, uh, Bertram Joseph, uh, liked to say that the playwright and the actors are the important people in the theater, and the director yeah. and the, the director and the critic, and that's so important. <laughs> So, um, yeah. of course, you want actors that can read a script, but you had some of those. You had some. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 Well, okay. Um, I have a lot more questions for you. We're going to meet again. We're going to talk some more. I, I want to talk some more about yoga. I want to talk about where you went after yoga. And I want to talk more about theater as a religion, as a theater as not a religion, theater as anti-religion, um, theater as a religion. Um, and I, that, so that's it. So th thank you so much for uh, talking to me. Great. Thank you. That was, it was fun. Okay. Was it? Was it? <laughs> I should. Go ahead. I feel, I feel like I should interview you sometime. <laughs> oh, I, 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 I uh, date accepted, Howard. Yes, okay. absolutely. Okay. At date accepted. We will, we will do that. That would be a lot of fun. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, have a beautiful night. I love you much. Talk to you soon. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So I'm going to close with a song off, uh, the Good Hearts first album. Um, and it's called Incarnadine. Uh, it's essentially a song about vegetarianism. <laughs> uh, and uh or the transition to vegetarianism and i guess i'm i chose it because uh howard is a lifelong vegetarian uh and his vegetarianism has always inspired me uh to be vegetarian and uh it's a love thing it's a peace thing it's a kindness thing and howard excels at all those things so i thought i would uh play incarnadine so this is Incarnadine by my band Goodhart from our first album. Mm -hmm. 
This has been the Inverse Theater Podcast, hosted by playwright Kirkwood Bromley. For more information, visit inversetheater.org.